the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our second hour of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight to bring back Dr. Stanley Kurtz, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Super important piece over at, Na- <coughs> excuse me, over at National Review. Parents can save Western civilization. I don't know if there's a radio show that talks as much about Western civilization as this one or the need to save it, but there is no writer who has done more work that we are able to use and deploy in defense of Western civilization than Stanley Kurtz. Stanley, welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, I have so much to talk to you about this piece, uh, but let me do it this way. Let me start here. Parents can save Western civilization. Let me allow you, the author, to state what your case in point is here, the point of your writing your piece, and then we'll go from there if that's okay. Sure. Well, there were really two points. The first was uh, just thinking about what just happened in Virginia and New Jersey and throughout the country, and I think it was much bigger than one election. I do think it's about our civilization, and the question is, uh, why uh, has there been a kind of halt called to this woke madness, and what does it Uh, What does it mean that parents were at the forefront of that? And I don't think it was a coincidence. What there has been, I believe, over the past really four, five, even six decades has been a pattern, a pattern in which if you can find a way to level the accusation of racism or sexism or homophobia or bigotry of some sort, nine times out of ten, you get capitulation. That has been the problem. People would throw out the principles of classical liberalism, the principles upon which our constitutional system is based, let's say in the case of affirmative action, which goes back decades, and or, say, establishing a studies department in a university based on race or ethnicity, which has a basically a political tilt instead of a scholarly one. Theoretically, you would uh, refer to your fundamental principles and say, well, we're dealing with individual liberty here, not with identity politics, and so unfortunately we're going to say no. But that didn't happen, or it couldn't be sustained, because always there was this charge of bigotry in some form or another. And there's a kind of calculation that goes on with that, If I'm an individual, I don't want to fight against that charge of bigotry because then I get attacked and I have to spend tremendous energy defending myself, Mm -hmm. which only makes me look guilty all the more. Mm -hmm. And so people just remain sullen and they're quiet and they roll over and they lose. And, of course, we know college administrators did this. I think something different just happened because parents were at the forefront Mm -hmm. and basically... The people who had the guts to say no and to draw the line 
and to take the risk of having these false charges hurled at them were parents because parents don't act like self-interested calculating individuals. They act in a self-sacrificial way. They act in a sense like soldiers uh, willing to put their, their own selves on the line on behalf of their children. So when the woke side finally came for the children, that's when the parents stepped up and said no. And I think that that is a marker of the fact that we just might be able to turn things around at this point. There's so much here, even in what you just said. We're talking to Stanley Kurtz from the Ethics and Public Policy Center, his piece at National Review, uh, important reading, Parents Can Save Western Civilization, crucial reading. Uh, Stanley, let me, let me, um, let me start uh, by asking you this. You think about what the parents did from Loudoun County. And it kind of puts an end to this notion that all politics are local, I think frequently attributed to Tip O'Neill. These parents in Loudoun County stood up for something really big that they knew they probably in their own, for lack of a better word, Anatevka, weren't going to succeed at. Loudoun County is not a red neighborhood. In fact, (laughs) it's one of the few counties that did go for Terry McAuliffe. But they gave not only the rest of Virginia – but the rest of this country, a rallying cry and a rallying charge. And I can't help but think one of the leaders of this was um, – Are you? do you know Asra Nomani? Are you familiar with her work a little uh, bit? Yes, I do. So for those of us who kind of thought that name rang a bell, we were recalling that she was Daniel Pearl's best friend and that she runs something called the Pearl Project. She knows firsthand – what ideology that marginalizes human beings because of their race or beliefs can lead to. Somewhere in the back of my head, I couldn't escape that thought. And good for her for whatever it was that animated her. But I couldn't help but think this is the kind of society, the kind that beheads Daniel Pearls, that we lead to when we teach basically that which I thought was ended at Nuremberg, but which is still alive and well in our world which is the ideology, comes from some religions, comes from some belief systems, even here in America, that people are better or worse because of their ethnicity or race. Am I missing this boat, or am I off on a tangent here? Oh, what a great point. I didn't know that about Asra Nomani, and I definitely think that fits the theme. You know, when someone close to you is at stake, or even your memory of that person and, and their loss, then you're, you're, it gives you courage and a willingness to take the slings and arrows. And I think, again, your point about Loudoun County actually being what someone could have said was a hopeless battle right. uh, is, is perfect. And that's, that's not the way you think when you're a parent or a soldier or anyone who is willing to put something on the line. And most of us aren't focused on that in our everyday lives and shouldn't be. Right. I mean, there's right. nothing wrong with being a rationally, reasonably calculating individual who looks out for their own interest. But now that the woke side has blown past all that and is pushing for the whole ball of wax, they're beginning to run up against the fact that the, the things that they're asking are forcing people to defend the things that are nearest and dearest. And at that point, I think that the woke people move, moved a step too far, and they're in danger of losing everything. Yeah, 
but they have moved very far, and right? I mean, you you concede this um, in oh, both yeah. what you're saying to me and what you write so much uh, uh, so, so far as to say that two things have gone on here, and they're they're related. But there is a tremendous amount of a chill effect, chilling effect, and intimidation effect. When you know if you want to defend a principle that was conceded as common sense only f- ten years ago, if you want to if you want to push that principle that was common sense ten years ago, you better be prepared to be called a racist. You better be prepared to be called a fascist. You better be called pre- be prepared to be called a white supremacist. And there's an element of this, I think, this chilling effect that comes out of the Merrick Garland memo too. I don't know how many incidents of FBI investigations we're going to have at school board meetings, but just the notion that you might get that knock on a door is intended, I believe, to make someone think twice about going to those school board meetings. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But one of the things I said in the piece was, and this is sort of the $64,000 question that we don't really fully know the answer to, but what I said in the piece was, on the one hand, uh, the woke side has made a lot of genuine converts, and that gives them power because they've got a critical mass of people who are willing to go with their false accusations of bigotry, and that puts on the chilling effect that you mentioned. But on the other hand, since there is a chill, which means people haven't been fully converted, but right. simply intimidated, then... Once you look around and mm-hmm. begin to realize, hey, there are a lot of people out there like me who don't buy this stuff, <clears throat> who are merely intimidated, and you become aware of your numbers, then all of a sudden the momentum shifts. And we don't know exactly how the numbers shake out at this point, but there is a real chance of a massive shift if people become aware, and I would only, I would actually appeal to Karl Marx at this point mm-hmm. uh, with his point about class consciousness, you know. Once, once uh, not that I'm looking at this in terms of economic class, but what he was, uh, part of what he was saying there was simply, when you become aware of the fact that you're part of a larger group uh, that has the capacity to strike back, uh, that changes things, and I think that goes for the anti-woke. Do you have to leave, uh, Stanley, or can you stay a little bit? I have to oh, take I can a. Co- I'd love you to. I'm going to take a quick commercial break. I have so much more to discuss with you on your piece. We're talking with Stanley Kurtz from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. His piece right now up at National Review: Parents Can Save Western Civilization. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. We're talking with Dr. Stanley Kurtz. His piece at National Review, Parents Can Save Western Civilization. Uh, Stanley, um, one of the things you write, we were talking about chilling effects. And uh, before I get to something you you wrote, let me just borrow from something you said in the previous segment. How crucially important it is for people who have these notions of common sense, these these notions that that somehow overcome the memory hole the progressives have foisted upon us, um, it's so tremendously important that they know they're not alone. And that, too, is what the Loudoun County parents showed, right? It's easy to think you're crazy when the entire culture tells you you're crazy. But when someone hears someone who agrees with them and sees maybe even people on a street corner with signs – that say they agree with them 
or say the same points they agree with. It's a tremendously important thing because I do think the progressive effort here is everything to shut us up, shut us down, and marginalize those of us who want to live under and carry the flag of Western civilization. Well, that's right, uh, Seth, and that's that's part of the effectiveness and the trick of this silencing and self-censorship, because when you silence people, then not only do they fail to speak, but they don't hear the people around them who might agree with them, and they can't become aware of the fact that they're actually part of the uh, majority, or that they're right. yeah, or that they're normal at all, right, right, yeah, right, exactly. And so, uh, and this is why, by the way, you find a number of university campuses where maybe only one professor is a conservative, but that's enough to drive the other side crazy. And this is why the shoutdowns are so important to the other side, because allowing even one voice, even one single credible voice to speak on the other side makes people look around and say, hmm, yeah. maybe they have a point. Yeah. The other part of that is, Stanley, and the noxious part of it, if I may, is all these people with the credibility of professors and uh, terminal degrees and so, and, 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 and so forth who do speak what I can only call is, is junk thought or rot – who do say things that 10 years ago 8th graders couldn't get away with saying. I'm thinking of the kinds of things you hear from the professoriate that you probably make a living observing. (laughs) But you think of your Michael Eric Dysons, you know, who talks about the new lieutenant governor of – the newly elected lieutenant governor, Winsome Sears of Virginia, as as a white puppet in blackface, right? I mean that kind of thing, that kind of rot wouldn't have been allowed – on an elementary school campus, it's now allowed uh, on universities who compete for the for the likes of Eric uh, Michael Eric Dyson, right? Yes, and when you see that kind of extremism echoed um, everywhere, it does make you think, well, maybe I'm the crazy one. Mm-hmm. I guess that must be the right way to look at things. And again, that's why I think it's so powerful when you get an election that really turns on these issues rather than exclusively or even mainly taxation or whatever, right. it wakes people up and it creates a tremendously powerful counterforce to the direction of the culture has been going in. Some years ago, a mutual friend of ours, Norman Podhoritz, wrote uh, a memory he had, wrote up a memory he had of a meeting with Allen Ginsberg in the 60s, um, the old beat poet. And Ginsberg uh, was trying to sell... Norman, you know, his bag of ideological goods, Norman wasn't buying it. And, 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 and Ginsburg walks out of Norman's apartment saying, we'll get you through your children. Um, they didn't get Norman's children. But clearly, clearly the effort, that, that was the quiet part out loud. They, they engaged in an effort to get us all, to get the whole country, maybe the entire civilization through our children. And there was something eyebrow-raising about the fact that we understood seniors in high school might engage in interesting debates, political and otherwise. But now five-year-olds, now five-year-olds are being instructed on race and gender fluidity. And when I say instructed, it's not really instructed, it's directed. They have understood something we conservatives didn't, even though Ronald Reagan warned us about it ad infinitum. But it all starts with the children in the schools. 
and the left knew that, and we were asleep at the switch, I think, for too long. Not you, but too many of us. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, conservatives, you know, have been way too slow on this. But, but I find the left's response to what's happening right now fascinating because uh, Ginsburg did say the quiet part out loud, and the interesting thing is it is still simultaneously the quiet part and out loud. Yes. It, it's out loud in the <laughs> sense that, uh, especially since the George Floyd protest, yep. this has been sweeping the country, yep. and seemingly it's all out in the open and everyone knows. But if you look at the leftward media, their line has been to deny, to yep. completely deny the CRT or anything like it is being taught. Right. And this is because I think they realize that they can't win a straight-up debate right. over all of this. And so they are, on the one hand, they're on offense, and on the other hand, you can tell that they're still petrified and hiding. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a really good point. It's important that that's their first line of defense, is to deny the truth of it. If that fails, their second line of defense is, it's not so bad. Um, it's only the teaching of the truth and that you white supremacists are the guilty parties here for wanting to suppress the truth. It's very Orwellian. But you, you get to this in your piece. You write, once a critical mass of accusers stand watch over the false charges they generate, silent and sullen acquiescence is the sensible response for too many people, for too many people. That's what they've gotten away with, intimidation tactics, right? Absolutely. But again, when you're a parent and you're working on behalf of your child, you're willing to take that risk. And when you do that, it can ripple through the whole culture and everyone can wake up and, and say, we don't have to sit still for this. So with, with luck, that's what will happen. Well, Stanley, uh, thank you. And thank you for writing this. Just one last thing that has been the work of your life and probably thus hard to answer in a minute or so. But put in a word for what we're talking about when we're talking about Western civilization. I talk about it a lot. I, I, use, I, I use a lot of the works you've used over the years. But what is it we're worried about losing here, Stanley? I'll, I'll just let you say whatever you want. Well, in the second half of the piece, I touch on the fact that we've got these terrible shout-downs. We have people holding up signs that say rule of law equals white supremacy or liberalism equals white supremacy. And the story of Western civilization is really the story of the development of our liberties, uh, showing why it's not about white supremacy. It shows the underlying principles. The story of Western civilization shows how precious they are, how difficult they were to achieve, and how dangerous it would be to lose them. And because we're not teaching that, that's why we're getting these, uh, these repudiations of, of liberty. Stanley Kurtz, Ethics and Public Policy Center, National Review. Thank you, brother. Thank you, friend. It's nice talking to you. It's lovely learning from you. Thank you, Seth. God bless. Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Yeah, Rob is in surprise. Hi, Rob. Hi, uh, Seth. Happy Friday, and I'm hoping you guys all have a great weekend. Oh, we're on our way. We're singing uh, Scarlet Begonias. We're doing everything we can here. <laughs> Good for you. Um, on Fridays minor, in college, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you had this it's, uh, this experience in 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 your salad days, Rob. But 
I remember Fridays on the college campus were uh, they were fun days. There were a lot of a lot of parties, a lot of dancing, a lot of bands, and inevitably, invariably, I should say, ineluctably, that song would be well played. That and Ico Ico. Yeah. Oh, Ico Ico. Well, at the With United the patchouli States, and the tie dye and the whole thing. Yeah. There you go. We uh, we at uh, the boat school, Naval Academy, um, had classes on Saturdays, so. We didn't have the kind of Friday nights, I guess, everybody else sort of had. But um, interestingly, uh, today, in 1940, FDR was reelected for his third term, and he promised neutrality uh, in the foreign wars, which obviously was going on between Britain and Germany. Uh, and he mentioned that uh, let no man or woman thoughtlessly <laughs> or falsely talk about uh, talk about American people sending its armies to European fields. And then the uh, Japanese, on this date in 1941, gave the order to bomb Pearl Harbor. Mm. But um, even even more importantly, in 2009, uh, you may remember the name Army Major Nidal Malik Hassan shouting Allahu Akbar killed 13 people at Fort Hood uh, to protect Muslims and Taliban leaders in Afghanistan. And it was not even referred to as domestic domestic terrorism or military extremism, which I just found unbelievable. Um, I was interested in, oh, and one more minor detail. There were uh, three West Point females who, I think it was on Fox, resigned uh, because uh, they quit West Point over the uh, mandatory woke academics being forced down their throats. And th- these were just three females. Um, I just found that very interesting because they obviously went to West Point, much like most of us service academy people do, with a lot of idealism and patriotism and everything. And then they get there, and they're getting all this information that has nothing to do with war fighting or combat or winning wars or real history. Um, and they decide to just go ahead and I can't, I can't do this. This is the uh, this is wrong, and they have principles, and they and they quit. I just thought that was good for them, and yet tragic for them because you know they could have probably made great officers, but they're not the kind of officers apparently that the military seems to want anymore. Um, what I really I heard. Want a, to let talk me about. let me stop on that point before we go to the other okay. one because I heard an interesting call to the Dennis Prager show this morning. From a woman who uh, is, I think, on probably all of our sides when it comes to mandates and so forth. But she said this, and Dennis argued with her, but this was her point, and I just wonder if it carries water with you. She said she wished the military would go along with the vaccines because the ones that are hesitant are probably on our side. And the last thing the military needs is people on our side leaving. I, it was an interesting argument. Dennis wasn't buying it. I wonder if it has purchase with you. Well, I, I think I, I think there are principles involved, as you probably know, and I think it, a lot of it has to do with personal choice, uh, personal freedom, and again, as we've talked many times, the uh, the vaccine, which doesn't seem to work, and once people are vaccinated and with a booster, uh, still get. COVID. I think a lot of the, and again, you're dealing with a demographic that um, they're they're not going to die. 
they're going to live. And mm-hmm. if it's just the flu or a bad cold, um, I don't think they need it. I don't think they want it. I'm just livid over this whole, you know, child vaccine thing that's going on right now. And maybe what you, you can't imagine. I'll, I'll let you make your other point on the other side of this break, Rob, if you want to hold. You can't imagine if you think that's where these people want to stop. You just can't imagine. <coughs> You're a dog owner. I'm looking at a I'm looking at a post right now of a um, of a woman in a grocery store carrying her dog in a carriage and futzing with her dog to get the mask on that dog. So that the dog doesn't, you know, transmit this deadly disease. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Rob is in surprise. Hi, Rob. Hi, hi, Seth. Thanks I'm, again. Uh, uh, I, oh, no problem. Um, I was. I was thinking a lot about, and I read something, I guess it was this morning, about uh, the federal funding that's being used for education and COVID uh, in, for Arizona. I guess the Governor Ducey is uh, kind of raising uh, the red flag about this. And it got me to thinking about, and I think I look back on, I guess it was the Obama administration where I saw all this federal funding going to states, and it was almost as though the federal government was holding states hostage uh, or, or uh, making them dependent on the federal government. And uh, other than things like, you know, Medicare and uh, some other federal programs, but I just want, I, and I don't know how it works. I don't know who approves. And it must be in the state legislatures that federal money comes in from Washington and that gives them leverage over certain things that I don't think are in the best interests of the state. Um, that may be. Yeah. If you're going to take the money, you have to take the rule. That's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. Well, yeah. And, and I don't know that that's a very good thing. But again, I don't know how the money flows. And uh, it doesn't seem to be publicized much, but it seems to me that... Well, last year was the wild, wild west. Last year, you know, the different funds and monies and accounts that were discovered and could be um, could be taken from the federal from the uh, from the federal uh, from the federal banks to to dispense to the states, especially for them to encourage uh, mail, universal mail and voting, et cetera. I mean, last year it was it was it was impossible to keep track of. There was so much money flying around for so many incentivized and de-incentivized activities. But, yeah, if a department or agency wants to take the money, they got to do what the what the piper calls the tune to. Well, but whatever happened to just saying no? Yeah. I mean, whatever happened to just, you know, standing up for the state and saying you know, we are not going to be blackmailed. We are not going to be uh, uh, taking your money and being threatened by you guys withdrawing it because we have a different way of looking right. at it. Right. I would things. go one so step further. Better. Yeah, I'd go one step further, and you'd probably agree with me, um, that the money that Washington sends to the states, the subvention that Washington gives to the states for any various number of things, 
is paid for by the citizens of those states, right? You pay a federal tax as right. well as a state tax. It's uh, well, you know sure. you 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 give a dollar to the federal government so that they can take uh, ten cents and give it back to the state in which you live in for the purpose of in in as the theory goes <laughs> for the purpose of helping yeah. you and the people in your state. Now the states have another option, I would think, or the agencies have another option, which is to take the money. Uh, Ron, uh, 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 Ron, um, Ron DeSantis is particularly good at this, taking the money and then claiming that the instruction is constitutional so you can tie it up in litigation and hopefully get a judge or a, or a, or a verdict that proves, proves, proves you right. Because occasionally you can challenge these things, not always very successfully, but occasionally you can. Yeah, I just kind of wonder when it all really started where – you know, federal money comes into a state, and then all of a sudden, you know, things are set up, and it ends up being to the state's disadvantage to actually take the federal money because that means the federal government has control over the state, which is not what we want. The first time I noticed it from a legal perspective, oh, I'll get this wrong a little bit, so don't hold it too terribly against me. But it had to do with one of the Midwestern states. It might have been one of the Dakotas suing the federal government on transportation funds requiring speed limits under then Transportation Secretary Elizabeth Dole in the Reagan years. So I think that's when I first became aware of it, somewhere in the mid-'80s. It had been going on Uh for a long time since then, or or prior to then. But that's when I first noticed it. So at least, at least as far back as the 70s, at least. Yeah, and and there are still, and I think Montana is one of them, that they don't necessarily, or Texas too, there are areas at least that don't even have a speed limit. Uh, from what I remember in my deep, dark past when I was in Texas. But um, I just uh, I, I just worry that, you know, it's like the sort of Damocles uh, being held over the heads of every state where uh, the states become dependent on the federal government yeah, for sure, funding sure. For, for various things, whether it's COVID, education. or Oh, yeah, uh, the it's education a, department of your, of your state, of Arizona, Rob. Think of it this way. Yeah. Uh, the federal money that fu- the federal the the allotment of federal money that goes to our state Department of Education is probably twelve percent of its budget. It's probably forty percent of its bureaucracy, however, to manage that twelve percent. And moreover, it's not nothing to the state. It's about a billion bucks. So you think about that, or almost mm-hmm. a billion bucks. You think about giving that up. It's hard. But I would. And 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 of course, it depends on on who's who's the superintendent or who's the governor. If you happen to be lucky enough in a state where the governor's in charge of education, so mm-hmm. yeah, no, I mean it's they they they've got that needle in the arm. There's no question yep. about it. Yeah, and and most of the education bureaucracy, I would assume, and I think rightly so, that are are Democrats. I wouldn't think most of it. I wouldn't think most of it. I'd I'd think darn near all of it. Okay. Well, I was being tough. Um, (laughs) I think darn near 90% of it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, sir. Also, um, just because um, I don't think it's really been talked about a lot, um, Kristen Sinema, I'm not sure what to make of her. Me neither. Um, You know, she 
she ran as a, a, a left liberal Democrat and won, which, you know, good for her, I guess. Um, but on her plus side, and I, I tend to be kind of pleased about all this, she's really fighting all this needless spending on reconciliation bill and budget. And, and I'm thinking, well, maybe we need to look at her as somebody who's actually acting like a grown-up. Because, you know, we don't hear anything about Mark Kelly. You you know what would be interesting, and we're just going to have to wait a little. Hopefully you and I will still be here. (laughs) But um, it'll be interesting if she gets a primary challenger, and it'll be interesting if the National if the uh, Senate Democratic, uh, uh, the Democratic Senate Committee, National Democratic Senate Committee endows and endorses her or her opponent from the left. That'll be the interesting tell, the way Nancy Pelosi and the NRC and the DNCC supported Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez against their primary opponents from the right. It'll be interesting to see if the senatorial committee and the Democrats and Chuck Schumer go all out for Kirsten Sinema or if they want to place their money in the middle of the table with someone more of their ilk. That'll be a real tell. We'll have to revisit that. I hope to hear from you before that, of course. Often. We'll be right back. Well, this just in. um, (laughs) Wow. I was remembering that in 2000 four and five, when Washington Post reporters, Wall Street Journal reporters, and New York Times reporters, not editorial pages, the journalists, Donna Priest, uh, Eric Lichtblau, and a few others at those, at those uh, esteemed newspapers, they, um, they got hold of some classified uh, wartime intelligence. Some of it had to do with what were known as black sites, where we were keeping high-value detainees in the war on terrorism, what allies were holding them on our behalf or on the West's behalf. Um, some of it had to do with disclosing a financing uh, tracking system of the terrorists. All of this were blown. Our allies' cover was blown. The terrorist financing financing project was blown. By the way, that project was seen by the 9-11 Commission as one of the most successful anti-terrorism projects that we had engaged in. So these reporters for that scoop wanted to disclose all this, harm our allies, harm our anti-war efforts. And several illegalities had to take place to get there. Uh, someone had to break an NDA and a, non, a, a non-disclosure agreement um, to give it to the press. The press had to break um, convention by not telling us who gave it to them and by publishing it and disseminating what is, after all, stolen material, all of it a violation of the Espionage Act. None of them were charged. What they were given was Pulitzer Prizes for that work. Today, the offices of James O'Keefe, the houses of James O'Keefe and Project Veritas's reporters were um, were met, were 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 greeted, to put it no higher, by the FBI. Project Veritas journalists were greeted by the FBI, supposedly 
and a lot of a lot of material seized, supposedly because O'Keefe and Project Veritas had a copy of or an original of Joe Biden's daughter's diary, Ashley Biden's daughter, Ashley Biden's diary. What's missed in all this are about a million things. One is Project Veritas has had this for a long time and has never written on it because it couldn't verify it. Two, it offered to give it to Ashley Biden's representative and attorney, but they didn't want to take it because they didn't want to give it the cover or credence of authentic authenticity. Um, and they tried to give it to a law enforcement agency, which um, never took it either. All the better for the FBI to now come and, after turning all that information down, storm the offices of Project Veritas, which to me is doing the kind of work we were told journalists are supposed to do, C.F. Mike Mike Wallace and 60 Minutes. What a shame. What a shame when the journalists are the targets now and the rest of the journalist community allows it. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 